your Bible tonight, can you open it to uh, the first letter of Peter? That's towards the back. We're going to read a few verses there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with prayer. So you can close your eyes if you want to. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that you are doing a good work in us of repentance over these last weeks and that you're going to continue that and deepen that, widen that and further that, God, because we want to look like you, Jesus. So I pray tonight that the purity of your word will fill us, transform us, and uh, release the potential of what you've locked inside of us, God, so that your word becomes flesh in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're on uh, week four of Agape, and who's enjoyed the last few weeks? Yeah, it's been, it's been uh, fun in a way, you know, also challenging, challenging for me even in the development of this because it's uh, challenging my own heart. And I have a message tonight uh, that uh, uh, on Agape, I'm going to continue this one more week, and then uh, next week it's going to be a continuation, but we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, into more of the, the spiritual culture we're building that's resting on this foundation of agape love. Uh, but I'm going to talk tonight that agape love, a, a community of agape, is a community of purity. Uh, it's a community that's free of shame. So that's my premise tonight, and uh, going to go after shame. So buckle up, it's going to be real. Amen? Who likes real? Yeah, yeah I like real. So First Peter... Uh, chapter 1, you should be there. I'm just going to read through a few verses, kind of build uh, the, the grounds that I'm going to operate on tonight. So this is chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently want, love one another from the heart. So, Uh, In obedience to the truth, you've purified your souls. So in the context, the truth is just a few verses prior. It's talking about the gospel, that we were redeemed faith, you've Jesus. So in obedience to the gospel message of salvation by faith, you've purified your souls. This purity that we've been given through salvation is a positional purity. Right? It's not, it's something that uh, is given like potential, if that makes sense. It doesn't necessarily mean it's realized, but it's positional, right? When we are saved, we became a new creation in Christ, and therefore we have a positional purification. We're pure uh, because we have standing within him, even if it's not yet actualized. Is that, do you follow that logic? Okay, so uh, since you've in obedience to the faith purified your souls for sincere love, fervently love one another from the heart. Uh, Just simple here, but there's a link between purity and love, right? And that's what I'm building on this evening. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. So Paul or Peter is uh, going to use a couple analogies here in these next couple verses. He starts with this analogy of seed. Right? You were born again. You were saved. 
through the seed, the imperishable seed of the word of God. Right, so the seed was yours, what you were born again with. And then this next verse, he kind of expounds upon the seed and plant metaphor. He says, all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So he's saying, you were, you were born again with seed, but you're going to grow into a plant that won't ever... You know that won't that will be enduring forever. Are you following me? So uh, our positional purity right, our, was was planted in us. It's like a seed. Okay, we're we're pure, but it's like a seed. We were just born again. And then if you skip one verse further, it says, "Therefore, he's going to switch the metaphor. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word." All right, so now it's not seeds to a plant that endures. You were born again, and you became like a newborn baby. Right, so you've purified yourself through faith in the gospel. You have positional purity, and it's like a baby. You get born like a baby. But he's saying now, uh, like a baby, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you can grow up into salvation. Right, so this is an issue of consumption here. He's saying, okay, you were born again and you were made pure in Christ, but you're a baby. It's just potential and how you grow up into salvation and actually realize, actualize this purity in your life is you consume the pure word of God, right? This, uh, this scripture references the word of the Lord like pure milk. In Ezekiel, there's a reference where uh, a scroll comes. God says, eat the scroll. And he says, the scroll was like honey, in my mouth, right? The promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey, right? The promised land is communion with Jesus. His voice, his word is purity, and that purity is like milk and honey. And as we feast upon it, we actually grow in salvation. How do we grow? It says, uh, so that you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Right? So as you receive his purity, as you receive his word, you taste of his kindness, and his kindness leads to repentance. All right, so follow me here. You get born again, you have positional purity. As you, as you consume this pure milk of the word, you grow up into salvation by repentance, by continually experiencing, tasting, consuming his truth, renewing your minds, being transformed into his image. Is What are you consuming? So uh, my first question tonight, and this is just a question I'm going to pose to you, is what are you consuming most in your life? Are you consuming the word more than media? You see I'm following? Uh, purity starts with consumption. If we're consuming anything more than the milk and honey of the voice of the word of Jesus, he is the word made flesh, they're one, the Bible, the word, the prophetic word, the spoken word. If we are not in a place of communion with him, consuming of purity, we will not grow into salvation. We will, we will have this potential like seeds within us that does not grow up, right? And we need to grow into salvation. We need to become pure, not just in, uh, in potential, not just in positional purity, but in incarnational purity, right? We want the purity of heaven that we have access to in Christ to actually grow up and become realized in our lives. Amen? So a couple verses further. 
Verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. All right, so your babies were newborn babies and were to long for the pure milk to grow up into salvation and realize and become incarnationally pure. But we are waged war against by the fleshly lust of the world. Right? Lust is uh, it's, it's, it's the enemy of purity. Right? It's the converse of a pure heart. Right? And it's the force that creates compromise in our lives. Right? It, it, it compels us. Right? And lust is not sexual in nature. Lust is self-gratifying in nature. Right? So lust is this force that goes to take to, to satisfy and to gratify self, which is the opposite of love because love does not seek its own. Right? And so we're wanting to be pure. We're wanting to be a holy people. And so we have to wage war against this flesh. And it says to keep our behavior excellent. Right? So that we will shine. Right? Philippians puts it this way. It says, do not grumble uh, or dispute what you're doing. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you because it's better when I don't botch it. <laughs> and I know where it is. So here we go. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Right? Pure. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation amongst whom you shine like lights, right? There is a call to purity. There is a call to live a life that is above reproach, right? And the way we live above reproach is by our behavior, right? I'm not going to preach a message on behavior modification because it doesn't work, but there's almost been a revolt where it's like, oh yeah, that's not, I'm not going to be behavior. It's not about behavior. It's about my beliefs. Yeah, but your beliefs should manifest as excellent behavior or we got to get down into our beliefs because something's not working, right? It is above reproach, okay? Excellent behavior is a life, living a life that has no compromise, Right? We are called as people to live above reproach, no compromise. Compromise has no place in the Christian's life. Right? We are in the image of God. We're to shine like lights in the midst of a generation. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you don't hide a light. You put it on a lampstand so that the whole world will see it. Right? Our whole life's purity says, just, just, just see it, just look. Just, you can gaze upon it because there's nothing to hide. There's no compromise. There's no gray areas. There's nothing but light. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, that's our goal, right? All right, you're really quiet. So I'm going to talk about excellent behavior, and I'm not going to preach a behavior modification message. I'm going to get down into the motivations, but I'm going to start at behaviors. I'm going to follow it down into the motivations, right? We want to shine like lights. We want to people without compromise, Okay, and Rob, when he was here, he, he gave this teaching that I've been kind of teaching this message off. And he talked about that a community of love, a community of agape, is one that has righteous regard for one another. And what he was speaking of in the context was the relationships between men and women that can get thwarted because of sexual shame. All right, to rewind to last week, I talked about that we live in this government of grace, 
right? And Joel says in his prophetic, prophetically, he says, you know, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. My sons and my daughters will prophesy. In other words, the favor of God, which gets dispensed according to his wisdom upon the body of Christ. If you weren't here, listen to the podcast. This will make sense once you do that, is, is upon us. We're this government of grace, which means we need each other which means the favor of God can come on anyone in this body and we need to stop and honor Jesus and receive, right? And this takes place when we submit in love and we prefer one another, right? This is all these messages are going together, okay? So the the point is that I'm making is that the relationship between men and women, I need my sisters, my sisters need me. I need mothers, I need fathers. We all have to be in in an agape connection of love if we're to receive the fullness of Christ, if we're to grow to maturity. Are you following me? Right? So, So sexual shame comes to bring division and perversion amongst the relationships within the body and obviously outside the body, but I'm talking to the body tonight. Are you okay? So, so. If we're to have righteous regard for one another, that means we must be, we, we must have a pure heart without shame so that we can relate to one another without these, you know, these avoidance or look, I'm just going to keep myself safe or I don't really know, right? There's, there's shame creates separation, which actually severs us from one another. It makes the hand separate from the foot, separate from the eye, and the body doesn't work like that. Okay, so an agape community is one that has righteous regard for one another. Can you go with me on this? So I'm going to talk about sexual shame. I'm, you know, this excellent behavior, we could go into a lot of behaviors. But I'm going to talk about sexual shame because this is where shame manifests most. Right? Shame manifests in all relationships. It manifests at work. It can manifest in your profession. It can manifest in all places of life. But sexuality, it manifests most. And I'm going to talk tonight, I'm going to go after sexual shame. So don't be nervous. I think it's going to be extremely liberating for many of us in this place. Uh, I'm going to share personally, because this is my own journey. And I don't preach uh, just because uh, it's what I, I preach incarnational messages that I've lived. Right? Uh, nine years ago, I was 18 years old, is the last time that I looked at pornography the Lord came, uh, it's been almost nine years, and he liberated me and delivered me from the demon of pornography. Right, this isn't something you mess with. This isn't something, yeah, you can clap. It's good. It was Jesus, and it was a big deal. Right? It was, uh, it was uh, probably a three-year season of my life, and it, it consumed me with, with shame, and it was a horrible place, and he set me free. Right, he delivered me, and it's not something you mess with. And that's exciting. We can clap, but I'm going here to confess to you all, I was not pure at that point. Right? It was a symptom. Okay? The next couple years of my life, I struggled with a, senior, a sinful pattern of habitual masturbation. I could not stop. I confessed to many people, but it was sinful. I don't want to get into, is masturbation sin? Is it not? Uh, I believe about the posture of the heart, and I believe that if you're using it to gratify self in a lustful way, it is sin. And I can tell you very clearly, it was a very sinful pattern, destructive pattern in my life. For two and a half years after I was liberated from the spirit of pornography, uh, the Lord came to me in March 2011, and he said, are you ready to make a covenant with your eyes? He said, if you make a covenant with your eyes, what you consume, I will give you the grace you need to liberate you from this bondage. I said, yes, God, I'd been seeking him fervently for at least a year and a half at this point, trying anything to to stop the behavior. 
unsuccessfully. I said, okay. And he said, stop watching movies. Stop consuming uh, um, intimate scenes that you shouldn't. Stop filling your eyes. It was a consumption issue. He was, he was tilting my view. Quit consuming gray zones. Because I wasn't looking at crazy stuff. I wasn't looking at porn. But I saw the gray areas. I saw the compromise. I saw the places where I would check people out, check girls out, this, this, that. I said, no more. Make a covenant with your eyes. You consume purity. You do this act of obedience, and I will give you the grace to liberate you. And it broke in my life in March of 2011. So however long that's been, it's been a while. And the cycle of habitual masturbation broke in my life. But I was not pure. I was not pure at that point. I thought I was but I was not pure. There was a deeper issue at play and it continued to manifest, right? And this is uh, the truth I want to communicate tonight and that is that sexual sin is symptomatic of a deeper issue, right? People tell me often, you know, I've got, a, I've got a sexual addiction problem. I've got a porn problem. I've got a masturbation issue. And I always think to myself, no, you don't. That's like telling me you've got a coughing problem. <laughs> I just have a coughing issue. I'm like, no, you don't. You have a virus in your body that's creating a cough. Right? And when it comes to sexual sin or any behavior that, that uh, is, is not excellent, there's a deeper issue at hand. Behavior is symptomatic. Behavior manifests out of our beliefs. Right? The virus that lust and sexual sin originates from is shame. Right? It's shame. You have an issue with shame. And I had a deep issue with shame in my life that was driving the whole ecosystem. Okay, because behavior modification, though it is important, I don't want to undergrade, it was a big deal. God liberated me from these things. That was good, but it was not, I was not yet pure. He had not yet changed my heart. Are you following me here? Shame is an extremely painful experience, right? It, it's, it is something that we were never meant to, to feel. It is something that is horribly painful. So we will do anything to keep ourselves from experiencing, from actually having to feel the pain of the shame. And so shame is actually the ecosystem that lust thrives in. Because shame is this pain inside, and lust then is this, this motivation to try to grab and use anything to gratify me to take this pain away. Are you following me? So, so the reason I start with sexuality is because this is something that brings pleasure. Right? This is something that we use, humans use all the time. But this could be work, this could be money, this could be anything. Lust is just this, it's anything that takes and manipulates to serve me. Right? And we don't even realize we're doing this a lot of times, but this is what shame does. So what is shame? What is shame? What's so painful about it? Right? I've heard people say this, shame tells you you are what you do. Right? So like... Uh, uh, you know, if you do something bad, you are this, right? That's true, but I think there's even a deeper fundamental lie that's associated with shame, and it's this. You have no value. You have no inherent value. That's shame. So shame convinces you that you have no value, which is an extraordinarily painful thing to feel. No human being was ever meant to experience emotionally the sensation of feeling worthless. 
And that is what shame convinces humanity. This is this entered at the fall. This entered with sin. We were never meant to feel worthless. All right? So when you, when you, when you have no value, you then derive it from your behavior. Right? So when you do bad behavior like sexual sin, you are then, by default, you're a dirty, filthy pervert. And then the things just start compiling. Are you following me? So I want to shift gears and just bring awareness that shame is what drives this ecosystem of performance. The religious spirit working to earn God, doing do good things to earn favor. Works Christianity. Performance is driven by shame. Right, Because human beings, we perform in an attempt to add value, to create value for ourselves. Right? I lived most of my life. My athletic career, though I did not know it, was consumed and motivated by shame. I had to be great because I didn't want to sit still and experience the truth, I was the, the, the lie that I thought was true that I was running from. You have no value. Okay, well then I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the best athlete in the world. I'm going to win as many championships as I can. Why? So I can ease that pain. In, in, in athletics became my expression of lust. I'm going to take this and use it to serve me. Is this resonating? You know you have shame if you feel like you live on a hamster wheel of achievement. You know you have shame if you're always striving. You know you have shame if you can't sit still and be at peace. You know you have shame if peace is always right around the corner. You're living in an ecosystem infected with shame. The underlying issue at stake here uh, is not sexuality, it's not behavior driven. It's a lack of understanding our value. Value comes from one place in this life, one place that offers secure security, because if you're in a performance ecosystem, you're only as valuable as your last day, how well you did. But the only secure place to find value in this life is from the love of God. Love bestows worth. Love bestows value. Agape bestows Value And this can't just be like, oh, God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. We, we profess and confess this intellectually, but this has to be experiential. Paul's a Hebrew. He says that you'd know the love of God. Know in the Hebrew is yada, Adam, yada, Eve. And they had a son. They had sex. That's what it means. And Paul says, yada, the love of God. This isn't like some type of, that's a great idea. Like you either know it or you don't. And so many of us try to convince us, no, I know his love. No, you know if you know it. Because you know it. Adam, yada, Eve, you know if there's been yada between you and another person. You know if there's been yada between you and God. And until you yada his because it's the only, ever, ever know your value, you will be sentenced to shame. Because it's the only thing that liberates us from the bondage of this slavery. 
It's mercy that breaks shame. Because when you receive mercy, you receive it in a low place where you could not deserve love. And he's a God of all mercy. His mercies are new every morning. And it is mercy that actually breaks the ecosystem. Because when you receive love at your lowest point, when his mercy touches you, it shatters the lie that you have no inherent value. Because if I'm receiving love at my lowest point, that speaks a truth more powerful. Which means even at your lowest, you're loved. Even at your lowest, you have worth. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, when we were throwing stones at him, he loved us. It's mercy that breaks shame. In my life, shame was driving me, and it created these cycles. And they were years apart cycles. And at first, I, you, can't, you can't really see a cycle when you're just on, like, the first turn, right? And then you come, and then I would turn again. And there are these cycles of destruction, cycles. And I got three or four cycles in, and there was an explosion in my life. My flesh was very revealed to me. I saw anger. I saw lust. Even though I was walking with God, seeking God diligently, seeking God as much as I possibly knew how. Okay, but I had this explosion, and it happened here about three cycles into this shame. And uh, it's really easy to justify when you see flesh, when you see your brokenness. It's really easy to start rehearsing a story that removes you from responsibility. Really, really easy. That's why we have to seek the truth. It's the truth that sets us free. I had this explosion, I'd seen my pain, and honestly, I felt real bad for myself. Because, you know, especially in life, you can always find someone to blame. That's what victims do. We're not victims, we're overcomers. Overcomers say, I don't care what happens to me, I don't care what something takes to me, I'm going to find truth and I'm going to be changed because of it. I got here, but he spoke to me in a very broken place. I was sitting in a statistics class, and funny how God works, but he spoke to me and He whispered this. I was wondering. My mind was wondering. I'm like down this cycle. I was sitting here in my statistics class. I was a junior in college. My mind was wondering down these cycles. And as I'm wondering, the Lord says, what's the common denominator? And I actually stifled back. It's like, oh, no, don't want to answer that question. What's the common denominator? Funny, I'm sitting in a stats class not paying attention. What's the common denominator, right? His stats are better. And I knew what he was getting at. He was saying, you're ready to look at the only person that's in all these destructive situations? It was me. It was me. And he took me down to uh, the the place where my shame was hiding. Uh, We all have a place where our shame hides. And for me, it was like a closet that I put down in the basement and locked and threw the key away. I never wanted to go back there. It had been driving my whole life. I didn't know it. And he took me, unlocked, said, are you ready uh, to look at the truth? I said, okay. I was terrified. I felt sick to my stomach. I opened that door. I let him, and I saw it. For the first time in my life, I saw. I let myself see the selfishness and the manipulation of my ways. I let myself see 
that because I believed the lie that I had no value, because I let shame have this place to my heart, it empowered me to live a life that was very shameful. And I was a manipulator. And I had used people again and again and again. And not only had I used people, I'd used Christian spirituality to serve me. I'd used situations. I'd used any angle. I was good. I was crafty with my mind. To, and I spiritualized it all. It sounded holy to me. But the truth was that I'd been living my life and I was in control. I was my own God. And I wanted God to kind of serve my will. So I would try to twist it and manipulate it. I tried to just work it into me. And I'd used people. I'd used situations. I'd done things that I wasn't proud of. And I saw it all. And... Uh, and when I saw it, it broke my heart. Literally uh, put a sick pit in my stomach. I couldn't believe how ugly I'd been. I'd been operating as a performer my whole life, which meant I had to convince myself every day that I was valuable. And so what I'd been using to create value at that point was how many hours I could pray or how well I could know the Bible or how spiritual I was because I had to find something to make me feel good about me. I didn't use people because I was bad. My heart was pure. My heart, my intentions were pure. They really were. But it was like the shame overrided my intentions, and I used people to make me feel good about me. It was lust. In this uh, ecosystem, in the season, rather, I, uh, I was pretty devastated. And literally, I mean, it's hard to make you relate with the amount of the horror of what I saw. I was... I, I didn't, I, I, did, I knew I was unlovable. Like, I knew. I knew the truth that I had no value was actually real. Like, I, I thought shame, the, all the shame I'd been running from was real. And in that place, thank you. I need to just, I should have had this up with me at the beginning. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a very painful, very painful season. And uh, I would... Go to sleep usually with a pit in my stomach. This is about a, a six-week season, and this is at the same time that a big explosion is going on in my life. So God is very gracious how he orchestrates our life to bring us into experiences of truth. I would go to sleep. I'd have to close my eyes and, and just beg God to take the pain away. And I'd wake up with like a, like a nauseous feeling because I was so ashamed of who I was, of who I'd been. And I woke up this one afternoon in December of 2011, and instead of this nauseous pit, there was the most deep, like a spring of serenity flowing through me. I literally got up and I was like feeling myself, like where'd the pain go? Like where, what, what's happening to me right now? And I walked up to the prayer chapel where I'd spent much time, much of my university years, and I just said, God, what is this? What am I feeling? And he spoke to me, and I had a revelation, probably for the first time in my life, of mercy. And he said, Jordan. Because at this point, I'd been seeking God. I was seeking freedom. That was the cry of my life, is I want to be free. For like three years, that was my only cry. I just, them, I just want to be free. And then I see, this is the filth of my behavior. And I get into this chapel, I say, God, what's happening? And he says, son... So I know this has been death. It was supposed to be. So, but I couldn't let you continue in the sins of your fathers and your father's fathers and your father's father's fathers. So I came and I set you free. And in that moment, 
I saw the mercy of God working to bring me to liberty. Even at the worst of my behavior, he was working to bring me to liberty. Like even, even despite my best efforts to disqualify myself, he loved me. Like he was working good. He was so patient. He didn't smite me in my self-righteousness. Like he loved me. And I literally sat there and something in me, it was like I just broke under the mercy of heaven. It took me a couple years before I even understood what happened. And uh, I equate it now to this. In John 8, there's a story of an adulterous woman who gets thrown at the feet of Jesus. And I get emotional. I'm probably going to get emotional because this is me. This is my story. She gets thrown in her shame at the feet of the righteous one. And she's sitting there with a crowd with stones ready to strike her. And I imagine... She was very terrified, waiting for the first blow, waiting for the just punishment of her shame, right? Her shame, her, her shame, like, was manifesting, right? She had to look at the truth, the shame of her behavior at the feet of the Holy, holy One with an angry crowd with stones. And uh, the stones drop silently to the ground, and she receives mercy. And why mercy breaks you? Is because you come to the point where you recognize, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve punishment. I deserve something bad for these behaviors I've done. And you receive mercy. And he received the punishment. Because the stones that dropped silently turned into fists and whips and nails and a cross that they scourged him on, and they beat him on, and they crucified Jesus on, because he took our place. The punishment that brought me peace fell upon him. And sometimes uh, mercy, we cheapen it because it's like, yeah, he's just merciful to me. He's merciful to me. And we fail to recognize the cost of that mercy, because the weight of recognizing that my shame fell upon him. It broke me. It like broke me. It destroyed my life. And it removed shame. And it pushed it out. And it put value to where at my worst, at the end of my entire life, I had ever been in my life, the most humiliating point, both publicly and privately, of my entire life, is when I experienced his mercy and he valued me and he loved me and performance broke because I didn't need to perform anymore. Right? It was the first time God answers the prayers to yada his love in the valley, not on the mountaintop because on the mountaintop we think we earned it. In the valley, we know we didn't. And that's when agape starts making sense. It starts becoming real and unconditional love of God. And when shame went, my heart changed. And I became pure for the first time from the heart where I could actually love people. So when I talk about a righteous regard amongst this community, it's a people free of shame. I can only, I can only value and be in a healthy, loving relationship with a sister in Christ if I have no shame. Right? Where there's no lust in the ecosystem, where it's not about 
using one another. Right? And so Rob said these two things, and I'm just going to reiterate them. If we are operating in any type of behavior towards someone of the other sex, be it one, withholding, that's a victory for hell, avoidance. Men or women, if you're in sexual shame and you avoid the other sex to keep yourself pure, you have to recognize hell's winning. You're not receiving grace. If you're dressing in a way to get attention from the opposite sex, you're using them to meet your own needs. If, you're, if, you're, if you have images in your mind that are not pure, you're using them to meet your own needs. Right? If, you're, if there's any motivation that is not love, that is not honor, that is not to give, then you're using people to meet your own needs. And this happens in the body of Christ because of shame. So I'm just, I just feel like I'm supposed to stop now. And I want to create a space uh, to just respond to mercy. And I think his mercy's in the room. Um, you can turn the lights down a little bit. And I'm just going to, we don't do this often because we have like concrete floors. But uh, I want to create a space that if you know that God's just revealing, if there's behavior in your life that's compromised, that's not excellent, uh, and you say, I'm in shame, I'm a hamster on a wheel, uh, there's a place in me that needs to experience mercy, um, you can put some music on, and I'll just invite you to come forward and, and kneel before the Lord uh, as a posture of humility that just says, God, I, I want, I need mercy, I ask for your mercy to come and, uh, and touch me, and so uh, if that's you, you can come forward now, there's not some type of an emotional experience this is supposed to just be opportunities to respond so you can come forward and then I just I'm gonna spend a few minutes just in prayer if you're on the prayer team and you're not responding um I'm going to change it up a little bit. If you can just kind of come and you can lay hands on people and pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you delight in giving mercy. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. Your mercy breaks our shame. And I pray tonight, God, that your mercy will come and break our shame. God, set us free. Liberate us from this slavery with the power of your love. God, I ask that the revelation of your mercy, God, will bring the yada of your love into this house, into our hearts, God. Together, Jesus, we just repent before you tonight and say, God, Forgive us of allowing shame a place in our hearts. Forgive us of believing that shameful lie, God, that we have no value. Forgive us, God. We repent. We repent at your feet and we say, God, we are here to receive your mercy. We open our hearts wide to receive your mercy. I feel like God, uh, for some of you, uh, he's triggering uh, he's triggering memories uh, in your mind and 
uh, you're gonna, it, it, he's triggering a journey. I see some of you going on a journey like a, like with a sack on your back and I feel like God is ushering you. It's like a demarcating tonight that he's ushering you into a journey uh, uh, into mercy. God, we thank you that it's not about our emotions. God, we thank you that it's not about what we're feeling. God, that, that obedience doesn't feel good. God, but it always creates good. So I thank you for the good that you're doing now, Holy Spirit. I thank you for what you're accomplishing right now, Holy Spirit. 